So welcome to the AI Edge podcast. And today I'm receiving two guests, Ryan and Alejandro. Welcome. Hey, how's it going? You. Good. Could you tell me more about you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Ryan Booth. Um, I've been in the IT industry, tech industry for better part of 20 years now. Um, the large core of my focus and the, the area that I spend my time in is data center infrastructure and cloud infrastructure right now. Um, I've, sw I've swapped over probably about 10 years or so ago into a, a pure software development focus. And that's where okay. I spent most of my time. And a lot of that has been around, you know, automating and building out um, cleaner infrastructure for customers and data centers and cloud infrastructure through automation. And that's where my focus has been. And then just over the past year, year and a half, I've really taken a dig dig in and interest into AI and ML, um, yeah. mostly because I, I enjoy what it can bring to the table. The technology is booming. Um, and it's, 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 it's a new, new tool for me to play with to see how we can utilize it in our industry. And so that's kind of what I've been after over the past year or so. No, that's great. That's great. What about, what about you, Alejandro? Hi, everybody. So I'm Alejandro Morales. So I, so just to give you a bit of background. I, my background is in bioengineering. So I did my undergraduate and graduate work um, in bioengineering and specifically in like medical imaging, applied medical imaging, disease um, prediction and progression, uh, specifically with like deep learning models. And lately in the last three years, since I've entered the industry from the academia, once I made the transition, I've been working as a data, science, data scientist and applied scientist. So basically just looking at how do I add value, create products. In the, I'm interested in product focused data science. So how do I build products that can people can use and get feedback from them? Happy to talk more about specifics, but I also have a strong interest in NLP as a domain. So I've nice. enjoyed a lot the resurgence in the last year or two. Nice. So Ryan, tell me, you, you were talking about uh, your interest in ML. Are you able to use ML in your job or are you interested in it uh, on the side? It's, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, it mostly started from the side, uh, me just really, really understanding what's going on. It, it honestly started um, with the, the release of stable diffusion and diffusion okay. models. I, I kind of got into it from the art side. Um, you can kind of tell with the painting. I, I, I love art. <laughs> um, it's kind of always been in the background of my life. Um, it's been the other side of my brain of technology. But I kind of started there and it's like, okay, I really need to understand what's going on here from a technology standpoint. And that just opened up the rabbit hole for me. Um, and then as you know, ChatGTP came out and then you see stuff like Copilot and your IDEs from GitHub, those started creeping into the day-to-day -day work as a software developer. And where me and my team sit right now, we are fortunate enough to, to explore, to play, to kind of go on our own direction. So we've really taken a, um, a heart in seeing what we can and can't do with AI and ML. And then I'm even going further now, as I've been showing the rest of the organization and the rest of the group, what we can do is going deeper into how, how we can actually do, do this type of stuff with a, in our products. Um, so it's, it's one of those, I'm definitely getting way over my head right now. Um, but you know, I have some, I have some good data scientists around me and, 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 and good stuff like your, your podcast and your, your newsletter and stuff that, that help ramp me up when I can. And it's, it's just run like hell right now. I'm happy to hear that uh, it's helping. So you're one of the people that is bringing AI into the the, the company. Correct. That's great. Yeah. What's uh, what type of products uh, do you see being able to use AI machine learning? So I 
I, I think when, especially when you're talking into my space with network infrastructure or cloud infrastructure or any type of IT services, um, you know, the, the, the first thing that everybody kind of thinks about and I think will be the biggest benefit is being able to get more meaningful insight into logging, into um, how the health of your system is, um, what's going on. Um, now there's a low-hanging fruit where you can, you know, now have a generative um, conversational interface into that without having to do queries and know the syntax to ask the, the infrastructure about stuff. But those are those are the bigger ones I see right now. And then it's also, you get into the area, automation kind of started this process and I see AI taking it to the next level. Um, we, we've slowly been building abstractions in the IT industry that make it easier and easier and easier for you to do your job. And mm -hmm. automation did that. And it, it, it really lowered the barrier of, you know, what skill set you need to deliver an infrastructure at a certain level. Cloud's the same way. Um, and I think AI is going to take that to the next level. It's funny because... Uh... When you say AI, I mean, automation with machine learning, automation on, you know, being able to understand logs with uh, ML is not a new thing. Are you thinking about AI? Are you thinking about the new capabilities that we have with AI now and applying them to those kind of problems? Or are you considering, I mean, the traditional machine learning that has proven to, to work there? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a great question. It's I, I'm guilty of it myself, where I, I lump all of this into one category or one term of AI. Um, but it's it's something that I'm proving out, or something that I'm trying to you know see for myself what where what brings value. Um, you know, it's one thing to just take a bunch of data and throw it at an LLM and see what it pumps out. Um, but like you said, there's there's been areas of the industry that's been doing this for quite a while, and so I can lean on that experience. And I do think some of that does fall back to a more simpler ML model. Um, so it's it's exploring what you can do with what right now, in my okay. opinion. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Good question. Go ahead. Oh, sorry to interrupt, Damien. I'm just curious, uh, Ryan, whether like the cybersecurity aspect is, is part of your scope of your role or your team, because that's a, another timely thing that you keep seeing data leaks um, and uh, the attacks and a lot of cyber attacks recently yeah um part of my career in the past um was was around cybersecurity. so cybersecurity kind of always sits in the back of my mind um but it's it's not an area that i've spent a lot of time thinking about um what can be done there um and it's, it's also a space that I, I really haven't dug into too too much to what people are doing in the past you know five eight years um but i would have to imagine that the security companies are all over this right now yeah what I find interesting is that uh, back in 2016, you know, give it a couple of years later, 2018, uh, there was a renewal of machine learning because of deep learning. So there was like a couple of frameworks like uh, PyTorch and TensorFlow that came out in 2016 approximately, and it became very fashionable in, you know, in the next couple of years. And there being a renewal of the culture around machine learning in the way you actually learn it. Prior to those type of frameworks, people were learning machine learning using the traditional machine learning algorithms, I don't know, like tree-based algorithms. And after 2016, people start to uh, in include a bit more deep learning frameworks in their, into their learning. And you found many people that knew nothing about the traditional machine learning and knew quite a bit about uh, the deep learning type machine learning. Mm -hmm. 
I'm afraid we're going to see something similar with this new generative AI hype in a sense that uh, a lot of people are going to forget that machine learning has, has been around for a long time, has been solving problems, the type of problems you've been describing for a long time, and uh, they're going to try to cram every problem they have with the newest algorithms, capabilities, LLM, etc., forgetting to try to see if a simpler approach could actually provide uh, similar or better results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's... go ahead. Resume to me. And yeah, thank you, Ryan. So uh, th that actually echoes my experience. So I, prior to my PhD, I didn't really have like a, a lot of experience in ML or like a strong background in it. And but I was always, I was, I was definitely interested in these deep learning models that at the time, 2017, was when I started my PhD, mm. were really impactful in the medical imaging um, uh, domain. So that's where I got my start. That's what I learned. I started using PyTorch, training these models, taking mm. um, like, you know, available like ResNet, DenseNet models and fine-tuned on like ImageNet and fine-tuning them further on, on specific domain data set. But now I'm in the process of like maybe on learning or relearning like the mm. basic ML theory and foundation that I feel like I never truly got because you're right. Like this is not like a one size fits all. It's like somebody wants to describe using PyTorch for like regression as using like a sledgehammer on a nail. It's like, <laughs> there is overkill. There's a lot of overhead that comes with these frameworks and, and solutions that are not always necessary. A lot of insight that I've been built over many decades of research and practice that I, I, I want to tap into at this point. Yeah. Well, talk about overkill with LLMs. I, I, but personally, myself, I do the same thing. Like with LLM, we have such an easy tool to use. I mean, we have a lot of frameworks to easily use APIs like OpenAI, and we can suddenly have access to one of the best language model that has ever been deployed. And we can use it to build software so suddenly, I don't need anymore to train a model to have access to the best model, which is very new. It's not something that we used to see in the past. So I see myself trying to do everything with it, preventing my... I don't want to, to train any more models. You know, it's like so much easier to just have a model that is already trained and I can use it. And it's, um, it's actually a potential future for machine learning. Like instead of uh, thinking about how you train models, you can think about how you have, you know, a factory of models and how you can plug them together to build products instead of trying to retrain models on your own uh, for your specific application. I mean, we, we've seen that with uh, the factory of models we have in, in uh, Hugging Face, for example. But um, for me, it's becoming more true and true, you know? Yeah, I, I think that's that's the... That's exactly what Hugging Face is doing and what they're becoming successful at is, is the sharing of models, the, the collaboration around all of that, where you don't have to go through all this stuff that tons of other data scientists have already gone through 9,000 times this year. Yeah. You know, everybody can share, share their progress, share their research and, and work from that. I, I agree. Yeah. I think on Hugging, Hugging Face, you can find like something like 200,000 models right now. I, I may be wrong, wow. but uh, I think it's of this order. It's pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I agree too. It's like, it's such impressive zero-shot capabilities. Like out of the box, these models can do so much. They're multitask learners and they're so widely applicable to any problem that you have that it really, 
I mean, in the last two years, like NLP, like the sentiment analysis, uh, like name entity recognition, it's like all trivial at this point, just ask the model, maybe play it a little bit with the prompt, but it's incredible. It does, maybe there'll be like a paradigm shift of like in the future, maybe fine tuning won't be feasible because there's entire research teams from Microsoft, Google's made us already working on like the best set of like trading parameters and high parameters. And it's kind of futile to try to fine tune it because they're just mm. so, so good at that point. I don't know. Well, let's see. It's a lot of uh, interesting things potentially coming in the future. Yeah. I, I see it as one of those, you know, because I think we're kind of, we're going around a couple different topics here. And a lot of it is, you know, like what was mentioned earlier is we're, the, the the core basics, the ML basics, um, doing simple models, doing these simpler tasks, um, people are, are not jumping straight into those or they're not learning it or we're not digging into that as deep as we should. And we're just going straight to the Ferrari, you know, of, of a model and, and just running that for everything. And I, I think for a large bulk of use cases, you know, pulling out my crystal ball and looking at how we'll go, that will be acceptable. To, to some extent, and you probably will. Most people rely on your your big three, big four, whatever they are, ML models and the training and everything they do with them um, and tweak them. But there is still a, a large amount of the industry that cannot rely on public stuff like that. They they have to have it internal. They, they have to have it air-gapped from the rest of the world. They can't use something that's public. They can't leak out information. Um, this is also why you see in the cloud area, you know, there's there is private... Um, federal clouds built in AWS and GCP and, and Azure because it's for federal government. It's highly sensitive. I, I think there's always going to be a percentage out there that need to be able to do this internal and they need to do stuff from the basics all the way up. And so the, the need to understand the basics and the foundational material, I think will always be there. And it, it also is one of those that I've, I've always seen in my career. The foundational knowledge is always what sticks around like everything else changes but the foundational knowledge does not and so sticking with that and running with it just does you more and more um better yeah um i'm not going to disagree with you on that well i would like to disagree s in some way uh, to that because yeah okay people need privacy when they are using ml models uh, but the same stand for when they are using cloud services Right. They need privacy. They need to make sure that they use secure, secure servers. And uh, for a long time, people had uh, a lot of difficulty thinking about using AWS or services like that. But uh, little by little, it got adopted and people are very comfortable with the idea to use cloud services. There was a time where banking institutions were not going to use public clouds like that. And... Uh, the same goes for medical institutions. And I think the mm -hmm. same go, still go for medical institutions. But if you look at AWS services, everything is HIPAA compliant. Uh, there's a right. lot of uh, compliances that are achieved uh, if you use those services. So in principle, it, it should fulfill any uh, requirements that people may have using uh, an external service. And OpenAI, for example, is going to, it's not yet HIPAA compliant, as I understand, but it's in, it's in process to becoming HIPAA compliant. And I keep hearing people being con concerned about the idea to use OpenAI API, for example, because of privacy concerns. And to me, the same goes with any cloud service you use. 
And uh, OpenAI is a bit young, is a bit maybe immature, but it's going to become mature. And I don't see why we could not rely on it as much as we can rely on other services that we use externally to the, the internet products when we use, you know? Mm -hmm. um, I, I, would, I would think we're in the, the phase right now of vetting that out and see where it goes. I think a lot of the concerns in the security area where you're probably right that there should not be concerns there. It's more of, we don't know if, if this is tightened up like it should be. Um, like OpenAI is, if, if, if I take a copy and paste a large batch of my source code into, you know, the API and share it into OpenAI, is that going to then get turned around and leaked somewhere? Um, and so I, I think that stuff has to be vetted out and, and then proven that, you know, it won't and it'll become more and more useful. Yeah. Um, I, I do know in the real world, you know, and, and cloud was a lot the same way, just like you said. There was a, a mass adoption of cloud and everybody was moving everything to the cloud as fast as they could. And then over the past three to five years, we're starting to see more and more of, of infrastructure and people pulling stuff back out of the cloud where it doesn't make sense. And I'm curious if we'll, if we'll go down that path with, with, this, um, with, with ML and AI as well and, and figure that out. But that's crystal balling again. We'll see. In my opinion, the cost of serving LLMs or deploying LLMs in-house is such that there's a, there's a real debate you can have internally to understand if really you want to do that or try to take a bit more risk potentially on the privacy side and uh, go with an API provider. It's true that uh, OpenAI so far has not proven to be 100% reliable, but I think there have been steps taken to actually go into, into that direction. I don't know. I would not be too concerned. I, I think there's a fear that is that makes sense right now, but the fear is, is uh, to me, is not consistent with what we know will happen when it comes to the way those uh, services will 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 improve when it comes to privacy. Yeah, I'm. I think it's interesting because it this is something that's like a recurring argument the on-prem versus cloud that keeps coming back. I feel like as cloud costs have risen and like maybe these technologies have been democratized to an extent with the open source efforts. I mean, right now you can get the Falcon 180 billion model that's like comparable to GPT 3.5. So I think there's a, there's a case to be made for on-prem deployment and serving of this, depending on the priorities of like the privacy is paramount that maybe they do want to eat the cost and potentially there's further optimizations, like you can see like the, the GGML, GGUF project being able to like really optimize and quantize these models and serve them um, in like different architectures like GPU, bare metal, like Mac, ARM chips, or even um, Intel CPUs. So I think this is a really exciting time and maybe yeah. it'll be easier over time to, to do this and bridge that gap. Yeah, makes sense. And then I'll also add too, I worry personally about OpenAI's lack of transparency when it comes to like, um, maybe not model version because they do tell you which version it is, but things like mm -hmm. some of the other uh, optimizations they do on the fly, like maybe they do some type of assisted generation, they do some speculated decoding, all of these things that they're like, kind of like feels like experimenting. I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but feels like they're experimenting with the live model and that loss of control over a product that you're actually like selling is a little worried to some companies, I would imagine. Yeah, that may be true. 
The, the thing I see is when you want to deploy models internally, you cannot only account for the cost of serving and deploying or, or fine-tuning, but you need also to account for the cost of hiring the right people. I mean, not everybody can take a, a model, quantize it, fine-tune it, and deploy it. And you need to be able to maintain that. You need to be able to have recurring, potentially, training. You need to be able to have people managing the, the deployed models. So you have a, you need potentially to have people that do the MLOps, the monitoring. And it's usually the type of cost that is, that is ignored when we think about uh, deploying internally models. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think everybody can do that. I don't think everybody can manage uh, a few billion parameters model in, you know, live. Seems to be... Yeah. Easy for a company like Meta. It seems to be easy for a company like Amazon. But I'm, I worked in many companies where, technologically speaking, they were very mature. I don't see them being able to actually handle something like that. And there are a lot of companies that are in the state of immaturity when it comes to uh, technology. And those same companies think they can deploy, deploy their own LLM. And I think it's a dangerous uh, road for them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, um, it's, it's an area, you know, as, as, as a manager myself that exploring the space, that's, that's one of the things that I, I, it's, it's a conversation and it's an argument that we're having internal a lot. And I assume a lot of technology companies are having that same argument right now. Um, and it really is around the, around the fact of when, when do you go out and buy a solution or when do you host it, you know, on the cloud or when, when do we need to hunker down and build our own? Um, and it, the, both of them come with costs, like, you know, a buy solution or a hosting solution in the cloud is going to be way more expensive um, with upfront cost and with, you know, licensing cost over time or, you know, your renewing cost over the years. Um, but you don't have to have as robust of a team across the board that yeah. maintains that area of the technology. Um, but internal, you know, if you're going to, you know, correct me if I'm wrong or give me insight here, but internal, if you're building your own stuff, it's like, okay, we need to build something unique or we need to have a really strong understanding of what we're building. Because when you go down the buy route or you go down, you know, utilizing something else out there, you inevitably fall into the trap of you don't know about it as deeply as you should, or maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. And so you kind of fall into that that path. And I think the whole industry at large is really trying to figure out that balance right now. When, when you say knowing about it, deeply knowing about it, like for what purpose and, and to what degree? So um, good question. So you, what, type of, what type of data um, pushing into that model can be, we be successful with? Um, can we add this type of data over here so we bring in a new service or we, we have some other data that comes from a different location, can we then take that data and push it through and, and get other types of results? How can we push the boundary of what we already have? And if yeah. you've architected, if you've built it, if you've gone through all the pain of putting it together and getting it in its current state, you should have a better idea from my viewpoint to know if yay or nay you can do that or how to approach it. I, 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 don't, I do not disagree. I mean, I don't, I don't even know if I agree with that because if you think about a large organization, Mm -hmm. And you think about different teams, you will have a team that builds the stuff and you will have another team that ingests the data into that stuff. And depending on the communication between those two teams, 
it may not go as smoothly as you can imagine if you build it internally. I would say that when you use Snowflake, when you use some uh, different softwares that are useful for, for companies, you know, like databases or even cloud services, I guarantee you that most engineers that use those tools would not be able to build them. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not the skill that is required to use them. And the skill to use them is actually very different from the skill to build them. So yeah, you could argue that if you, wa- if you are one person, if you build that stuff, that one person will know how to feed the data within that stuff. But if you, are a, if you have you know, 10 teams and 100 people, you have, one, you have five people that build the stuff and you have five other people that need to use it. And five years from now, those people that built it you know, will not even be there anymore. And it would be even difficult to argue that those people that built it could even help the people that would use it. When I was working at Meta, uh, I, I've, I've used many internal tools that were built by the people internally, and there were very little documentation. It was very hard to use sometimes, and it was tricky to find the right people to actually uh, understand how their tool work. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I understand the, the logic, but I don't think it works in, in most cases. And I would say this also. Uh, the skill to ingest data into an LLM, it's not the most complex skill to learn. You know, it's a skill. It's something you have to learn. It's something that you have to train for. It's not something that you improvise. But still, if you take anybody with a bit of experience with data, that the training to... To, to train that person, it would take two weeks. You know, it's not something that is extremely complicated. But when you hire machine learning engineers or MLOps engineers, try to bring somebody into that team, it, there's a lot of training required. So the, the type of skills to train and deploy a model and maintain a model internally takes years to get, but the skills to ingest data into an API provider takes weeks to, to learn. So, yeah, you cannot improvise, but still, you know, there's some, there's some clear differences to me in, in, in the cost, uh, money and time-wise. Yeah. You know, I think also one other thing I wanted to point out is that, so right now, like for take supervised models, they have a very clear goal. So it's like, it's like a classification model. Mm-hmm. They're very easy to like measure their performance. And like version and then do this type of MLOP like uh, life cycle. Generative models are different though. There's a lot of different facets to evaluating their performance. It's like alignment, toxicity, um, actually like tax specific uh, evaluation. So it's it's not like you could retrofit an an existing MLOps uh, in an organization to handle this new uh, like crop of models because it takes some specific like domain specific knowledge and new ways of approaching that that I think are also non-trivial. Yeah, I agree with that. Like, how do you assess the quality of your fine-tuned model? It's not, it's not even clear to me. If I think about the typical LLM, they are trained on billions, trillions of tokens, uh, pre-trained on billions of tokens, and then you want to fine-tune them and you have millions of tokens or even less sometimes. So... Can you even validate that your fine-tuned model has the capabilities that 
you expect it to have uh, prior to the fine-tuning. What I'm trying to say is that you may want to fine-tune a model and you may want to actually keep some of the previous capabilities. You may want to update it by uh, giving it access to different type of data or you want maybe to specialize it into some specific task. But maybe you want to have that model still being good at logic, still being good at math or programming like it was prior to the fine-tuning. But if you try to fine-tune it, let's say to speak, let's say Spanish, maybe it's losing its capability in programming, but you will not have the right data to actually validate that it's still good there or not. So it's actually very tricky to validate the performance of a generative model. I, I find that a risky thing. I think you need to use a fine-tuned LLMs for very, very specific tasks and not expect it to do things that it was not fine-tuned for. Yeah, interesting. It, it really does, um, kind of from my perspective, your, your comment on how to validate and how to benchmark you know, the, the performance of, of what you're doing to this stuff, it seems like that's a pretty big gap in the industry right now, or it's still an area that, and as, as difficult it is, as it is, we're still trying to figure out how to handle that. Is, is that true or not? How to validate uh, LLMs or how um, to va LLM, validate yeah. models? Yeah, I, or val I think, validate I think ML models? Not necessarily ML models, but I, I think more around LLM models. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'm not too sure about that. I think... Prior, prior to generative AI, the culture around the way we train models has always been about having a, a metrics and you optimize that metrics to, to maximize the performance. I recently read Stanford has this like benchmark that they created to, because um, there's been a lot of like large language models and benchmarks, like Hugging Face has the leaderboards um, in Stanford. Also, like this, there's efforts to create like a unified evaluation benchmark that assesses a range of things like deduction, multi-hop reasoning, toxicity, alignment to whatever task yeah. you're doing. So I think there's, there's an active area of research right now, but there's no clear way. And, and if you have a specific task that is not already covered by this, then you have to create your own benchmark on your own internal data for that. Yeah, it has always been a struggle in natural language processing to assess uh, models for some, some task because it, NLP models tend to look closer. I mean, they seem to behave a, a bit more like humans, more than a model that is predicting customer churn, for example. And uh, because we want those models to, to seem like human when they write text, it becomes difficult to understand what it is that we need to optimize when it comes to training those models. Yeah, you're right. There's some there's some benchmarks, but they seem to evolve all the time, and we discover little by little new things that we know we want to make sure the LLM is good at. So, I mean, the fact that testing a LLM for toxicity it's 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 somewhat new. I mean, we were not testing that I don't know five years ago, and uh, yeah, there's a lot of of things that we are discovering right now. I think it's going to Evolve little by little. One of the best way to assess a model is using humans to actually rate, label the output of a of a model to see if it's in line with what is expected. It's a, it's a bit different from traditional way to deal with machine learning model. 
Yeah. And uh, we're kind of going down that path with a number of the things we're trying out, a number of the experiments we have is, you know, taking those those subject matter experts and, and you know, letting them loose on the chat bot or the, the model itself, the LLM, and, and, and seeing if it's given us the results and rating the results. Um, and then that's a, that's a whole new space as well, because it's, it's a matter of, you know, how do they rank them? What's, you know, how, how fine grain do they rank them? Do they just do a simple thumbs up, thumbs down? Or is it a one through 10 type thing? Do you give feedback? Yeah. And so it's, it's an interesting area as well. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Alejandro, do, do you use a LLM in your, in your job? I do. Um, I'll say it's not my primary focus. I'm more in the ML infrastructure side. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'm in the like payment risk prevention uh, space, but it's it's there's a lot of uh, excitement around it, and I think everybody, and I mean everybody that I've seen spoken to at any company, is trying to incorporate them into their daily activities. And certainly, if they're like an ML or or data science team, you'd be you'd be foolish not to try to see some applicability. So there's a lot of like um, maybe not moonshot projects for like exploratory projects that I'm working on, like creating like a help chatbot especially like mm. those retrieval augmented generation. Um, you've seen it all the time. It's like vector database to like a pre-trained llama and, and having that just in internal documentation to expedite or like aid your, your operations or, or the, your daily work. And do you see, do you see traction? I mean, are you, you explore, you're in a exploratory phase, if I understand correctly. Do you see an avenue where you're going to build a, a few products in that uh, area uh, and do you see traction in on the user side absolutely i mean the excitement is widespread amongst the mm-hmm. team even if you don't have an nlp background or interest in particular it took my entire team by storm i'm part of one of the largest science teams at amazon so and it was like everybody was we created like an, an interest group to discuss the latest breakthroughs because every week there's a big breakthrough so just to keep up uh, so yeah there's a lot of buying from from people and from leadership so it's definitely for the next year. It's going to be a big focus, and some of these projects are actually morphing into like actual production launches. So, um, yeah, that's been my experience so far. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense. So, I was curious about what is the future looking like for you guys, and how it connects to to AI. For for myself, um, it's a pretty massive unknown. Um, for me, it's, it's really about how far down the rabbit hole I take this, um, you know, what, what, what solutions I come out with. And if, if there's actually products that come out of it, how do I bring those products to market? But it, yeah, that's kind of, it's kind of what it is right now. How much of my balance do I want in, um, AI ML? What, how much balance do I want in software development and leading software teams like that? So, you know, it's, it's definitely going to be at the forefront of my career for, you know, a good while. Um, but where it goes, I have absolutely no idea. Sure. Yeah, I, I I feel similarly, Ryan. So don't be discouraged. But <laughs> it's just there's too many possibilities, too many opportunities. Yeah. It's a lot of excitement. Um, I think for me, it's like I was fortunate to have a bit of a experience with LLMs back when they weren't the hottest thing ever. In like 2021, I got a chance to use like you know Bird, Roberta, um, Bards, uh, but from Meta actually. So and I got uh, a lot of use out of them to like build supervised models for classification. And so I'm in a, I'm in a fortunate place where like I have that experience and I actually want to keep growing into this. And I'm really interested in these models and their emerging uh, capabilities. And I want to keep learning about how to optimize them, how to deploy them. What are these like tricks that OpenAI is doing 
behind under the scenes to make them so responsive because that's fascinating to me because if you try to run these models locally it's it takes a while to even generate like the smallest um sequence so yeah i think that's what i want to keep growing and learning um in my career right now i see and uh what uh what strategy are you taking to to get there so it's moving at a very fast pace as i said so there's a fair bit of like reading at the latest papers following like um, like thought leaders uh, and hugging face specifically, like their LinkedIn. I highly recommend anybody interested really? in in, um, in 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 keeping up with the the, the onslaught of papers and new uh, basically optimization techniques to how to use them in practice. So, the newsletters is another one I discovered. Damien's newsletters, AI Edge, and I really got a lot of value from that. Um, like other newsletters, like the Byte Byte um, Go um, newsletter is also really useful yeah. too because I'm interested in the engineering aspect of creating applications too. So that's what I do personally. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. And you want to, to keep being an engineer or do you want to grow as a, as a manager at some point? You know, something, it's like the age-old question. I think there's going to be a fork in the road at some point where I'm going to have to decide, do I want to just be an individual contributor or engineer or scientist or do I want to go into management? And I think... I feel like I have an aptitude for managing people and mentoring. I enjoy it. So I think it's in my future. I don't think I'm ready to make that transition yet. I really, mm -hmm. still really enjoy coding and, and reading papers and actually working and building tools and applications and products. So maybe in five years, I'll start thinking more about that transition. Ryan, you're more of a manager right now, right? Um, I've only been really 100% um, focused on management and leadership, well, management for probably the past four or five years. Um, I've always been a very hands-on, in-the-trenches technology um, expert. So I, I, I kind of am balancing the two right now, um, but slowly moving okay. into the management path. Um, I've always been the type of person, I would tell you all the way up until about five years ago, I'll never be in management. I enjoy leadership, but I do not enjoy management. Um, but the thing that kind of really pushed me over the edge was, you know, I've, I've built a lot of stuff. I've made a lot of successful things. Um, I've, you know, done all the cool projects that I like to do. And now I'm wanting to build bigger. And every time I go bigger, I need more people to help me. And I'm hitting a point yeah. to where I now want to lead people to build their best stuff. And we build something awesome that we kind of do individually. And that's what kicked me over into the management track, was that right there. Yeah, that makes sense. Alejandro, you were, you were saying something like, if you become a manager, you, you will not build anymore. I, I would, yeah, I would... that was a fascinating perspective, Ryan. Thank you for that. Yeah. I... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, as a manager, it, first several, it depends on the company. It depends on how large the company is. The smaller companies, the CTO could obviously be writing code every day. Um, but as you get larger and larger, um, you know, maybe like the first two or three levels of managers can very easily be in the thick of things hands on. Um, it's not a problem. It's just your choice as a manager what to do, um, you know, and especially with the current trends with leadership is leadership is more leadership and management is more of a support role of the engineers. You know, that's where the talent is. That's where the, the cool things are happening. You're there to support them and help them. And so you can dive in and find out where you can help them out. And that still keeps you hands-on. More and more managers maybe, you see now. Go ahead. It may be different uh, in Amazon, where uh, managers may be more of uh, people managers. Mm -hmm. 
It depends, actually. So I think there's been a transition in the last year with all of the layoffs where it's like, you got to justify the value that you bring and there's no, like, there can't be any fat. So I've, I've seen a trend in some of these larger tech firms where it's like the managers have to be heads on too and get back into the actual work and individual contributions. So maybe this is changing and, and maybe that's the future. I'm not sure. But um, certainly think about like, there's a limit to your bandwidth and how much you can build as an individual person. And once you get to a certain level, architecting large systems, you just can't do that alone. So that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I would honestly say kind of to y'all's point, you know, this is one of those that's very dependent on the company you're at and the culture you're in um, and their structure. And, you know, especially if you're looking in the force of looking into going into those first line leadership roles, the culture and how they expect their leaders to operate is something to pay a lot of attention to. Yeah, I, I was a manager in a small startup and definitely what you were talking about, the idea to build bigger, it's what... Uh, I felt it's what I wanted to do and it's what I felt as a manager that I could really look at problems from a bigger, I mean, from a perspective where things were, you know, I was looking at a, as a bigger picture and I was still building, you know, I, I, I was very hands-on, but even the managing part felt like building, even if I was not sometimes not doing the things myself. I would not. I would not say that being a manager is something that prevents you from building. It's actually something that gives you more power to build bigger things or to think at the bigger picture. When I was at Meta, my manager. So I was a tech lead at Meta, and it was very similar to the type of job I was having when I was a manager in my previous startup. And my manager was definitely a people manager, and she was completely disconnected from. Uh, the way things were done, like on the ground, it would have been a while for her to get her hands dirty. And she would start to be very, very disconnected from the way uh, people were solving problems. The way it was structured, I didn't think it was very efficient. I, I think you brought up a really good point, um, especially since we're talking about career and stuff, is around startups um, and larger companies. I, I myself absolutely love working in the startup space. I love the energy. And I love the, the all hands on deck mentality of it because it does, it takes your leaders, it takes everybody to, to come together and make something happen. Um, and I personally like that because you have absolutely everything thrown at you to try to figure out. You're, you're not just in one little corner focused on one little thing. And I think that's the biggest difference between like the startup life and, you know, you look at all these fame companies and everybody wants to work for these massive fame companies which is great. They are doing amazing stuff. But for a lot of people inside the fame companies, they're highly focused in one given area yeah. and that's all they do. And so a lot of people will get stuck in those ruts or get stuck in those companies and they don't enjoy their work. They don't enjoy their day after a year or two because they don't realize that they're, they're not doing the stuff that they would want to do when a startup might be a better option for them. But then yes. that's vice versa. There's people who the pressure, the, the time crunch, the think on your feet as fast as you can type aspects of a startup, you know, might not fit some people and they want more of a relaxed, more of a, you know, spend some time thinking through stuff type approach. And the larger companies are better for stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. I, I actually completely agree with that. I used to live in the Bay Area working in a startup and I had to move uh, in Los Angeles. And I always regretted the fact that I never worked in a big thing. 
I was, when you moved, when I moved to LA, it became more difficult to access companies like Google, Meta, Amazon. They are there, but the teams are smaller and the opportunities to apply there were more limited. So I always felt that I missed something when I was in the Bay Area and I was wishing I could have applied, I mean, I could have applied to those jobs when I was there. But then when COVID happened, uh, Meta became remote and I got the opportunity to finally work there. And I'm so glad I finally worked there because all those regrets fed away because I, I really hated working there. It was a, a very bad experience for me, but it was a very great learning experience for myself. You know, I was able to grow from that because finally I did have, I did not have anything to regret anymore. I could move on and pass to something else. And uh, it's there I realized that, yeah, I mean, I 100% prefer working in a startup. The work in a startup is so much more exciting and it's so much easier to, I felt, be closer to the people you're working with. Mm -hmm. In a startup, I felt that it was less advanced. All the work we were doing was not as advanced as working in a company like Meta, for sure. You know, we were using ML models that were not the latest algorithms. You know, we were not trying to use the uh, latest advancements in, in technologies. That was not the point. The point is we wanted to build things that works. So we were very much generalist. We would not specialize in one aspect of the work. We would, you know, as, as machine learning engineer, we would work as much as data engineer than data scientist than software engineer, you know, we had to go around and work on the, all the different aspects and we could not really specialize in becoming very good in one aspect. But at Meta, yeah, really, I really had to specialize. I was working on a small piece of a big project. So the people that would work there for years, they would become extremely specialized and expert on that one small aspect. And uh, for some people, that may be great. It's not something that I really enjoyed. I, I prefer to deal with the big picture. And I found that easier in a, in a startup. That's certainly been my experience as well. So I've had a chance to work. My first industry job was at a startup. And I was a data scientist. And I got to pretty much be as hands-on as I wanted. I mean, by out of necessity, like I set up the data engineering pipelines. I was really close to the, the raw data. I would set up the entire, like, product life cycle and development. And I really enjoyed that and talking to like engineering teams and sales teams and product teams. And yeah, having a lot of freedom to like basically try on new things and break yeah. things. Whereas I'd say one of the reasons I wanted to join Amazon specifically was because kind of like you, Dave, you know, I always had that, like that thought in my mind of like, how does it work in there? How does these major companies are able to be so reliable and power this, these products that millions and millions of people, billions yeah. even use? So I wanted to see how the sausage is made. So, and I've gotten a chance to do just that. And it's fascinating, like how mature the engineering process is. Like when there's a large scale event, Ryan, you mentioned like all hands on deck. There's still even that at companies like Amazon, where like there's a high enough severity uh, issue. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. It's like everybody just descends into the problem, like a form of hornet. And, it, and they resolve it within like hours. Um, and like, it could be like an entire bleep is down, you know? So I've, I've, there's a lot of value in that, but it's certainly like, I don't appreciate the myopic focus on a specific uh, little part of a system because 
at least in Amazon, uh, my experience is, it's like a, a microservices, but it's like, that's how the teams are organized by my, by service. Each one owns a piece of a service or even a full service. And we're all like interconnected and yeah, you don't really get to step outside too much and just look at the whole picture because it's almost too complicated for any one yeah. person to fully understand. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's what I felt when I was working at Meta. It was way too complicated uh, for one person to actually deal with everything. So you had to specialize. But, uh, you know, like uh, you specialize, but you still see, you're still able to feel the big picture in a sense. And it's what I enjoyed being a meta. And it's something that I know I could not have got, I could not have gotten that experience anywhere else apart from one of the big things, you know, which is to understand how you build things for billions of people to use them. Pr prior to that, I, I knew theoretically how you build a big ML pipeline, but I never needed as much scale that I needed when I was at Meta. And being able to get a feel for that scale by actually touching it, by actually, actually working on the projects that are related to that scale, uh, that was an amazing experience. That was an amazing learning experience. I finally felt that what I, I learned in a book was making sense, you know? Yeah. And, and I, I do not, so I, I hated working there, but I recommend anybody to go to work there at least a little, to suffer a little bit there to gain that, that experience because it's, a, it's a definitely an experience that is, is going to, to build uh, that knowledge for if you want to become a, a machine learning engineer you know, or an engineer simply. Yeah, exactly. I feel, I still remember the, I would, the fear or the trepidation I felt when I was about to do my first model refresh and deployment in production. It's just like, oh, there's millions of people that this is going to affect in the next 24 hours. Let's hope nothing breaks, you know? So, but there's a lot of redundancy and like systems in place. So even if you make a mistake, they're caught or they're rolled back pretty quickly. But yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have a question. So I'm curious, like you've had a lot of experience moving from startups to Meta and different roles. How did you navigate? Because just to give you more context, I've been a data scientist at this point and I've been an applied scientist. And those are analogous roles. There's, it's, some of it is like the naming convention between companies, but the mm. scope of the roles are similar. I'm just curious, like, how did you approach that? Like, how to choose the right role oh. or the right like direction, like what motivated you? Because right now I'm going by instinct and gut of what feels right. But I'm curious if you had like a more structured approach for them. It's much easier to look back and say, yeah, here's a strategy that I had than to look forward and here's a strategy that I have right now for the future. To be honest, I didn't have a strategy. I came out of a PhD and I took the job that where they hired me, you know. I applied to, to become a software engineer. I applied to become a consultant. I applied uh, to become a data scientist and I became a data scientist because I was hired as a data scientist. And then I tried to move forward with that uh, position. So first of all, my wife had to move cities. So I had to find a new job. So I had to find a new data scientist position. So uh, that was the parkour I took. I got laid off a few times, a few times. So uh, that was not really at some point my choice. Being laid off was not part of the strategy. 
but uh, yeah, I tried to move from job to jobs, uh, try to find the, the, the duty that I found enjoyable. What I noticed over the years is that uh, what we used to call data scientist became more and more what we call now machine learning engineer. And what we call now data scientist is much more what we used to call data analyst. So over the years, I tried to be a bit more careful to change my title because uh, I didn't want people to think that I was a data analyst, that I could only do data analysis because really what I've been doing since the beginning of my career was to deal with machine learning. I became more and more a software engineer on the way. When I started my career, it was more true that people dealing with machine learning were less good with software engineering. It's much less true now. I just knew I wanted to, to only work with machine learning. So I made sure that I would go to job positions that were saying machine learning in the job title. And uh, I, I was very careful about that. There was a point in my career where I was, I was a director of machine learning and data science. And my previous, jo my previous job titles were data scientist. And uh, I had a hard time convincing people that I could be a machine learning engineer. I was seeing this shift in the market where people thought that data scientists could not deal with machine learning. So that kind of woke me up and I made sure that I was, I was going to, on paper, look like a machine learning expert, even in the title. Uh, but no, I, I don't say I don't say I have a, a, a strategy. I I try to understand over the uh, over the years. I try to understand what I don't like to avoid it in the next job. I try to test different things to make sure that I'm educated enough to have an opinion on the different things and to know where I'm going to go next. Honestly, right now, you know, I'm not even anymore a machine learning engineer. I'm a content creator. It would be hard for me to tell you that there's a strategy there. You know, like I'm really trying to get my own thing going without the best strategy in mind, you know, just trying to do the best I can and to, to, to see how people react to what I do. Uh, looking back, I can tell you that it looked like I strategized things, but uh, when I was moving forward in that mess, no, uh, that was, uh, I, just, I just, you know, moved forward surviving. Uh, the different uh, things that was thrown at me and I survived, but that's it. We're in a really interesting space right now um, with, with all the evolution and all the churn and all the new stuff landing. Like it's every single day, new stuff's hitting and new technologies are coming. Um, and, you know, y'all brought up earlier the, the focus on, on where do you focus your time and energy throughout the day? Cause you can't focus all of it. Um, I'm, I'm curious in, in the, in the, in the industry, you know, if it's one of those that, you know, you, you, you just pick up all this experience or, is, or what you can, you pick up the focuses, you, you dig into the projects that you're given, you lean into the areas that you, you enjoy and, and you really push forward, you know, and it just kind of goes where it goes. Um, I, I wonder if, if, if that's, if, if that's a successful approach here with, with the data science, ML engineer, um, career path. To, to push in whatever direction he works? Well, it's, it's more of, a, you know, instead of having, I am going to only focus on this one thing here, and this is where my career is going to take me all the way to the end. Or, you know, and 
I guess what I'm trying to say is, is at a bigger level, how I've seen throughout my career um, with, with the different areas of infrastructure is, you know, be very open-minded about what you're working on. Um, don't, you know, don't necessarily say no to something because you don't necessarily like it or you don't necessarily want to focus on that. You want to focus somewhere else. Um, you know, everything you go down is going to take you down a path that's going to get you one step further. And once you get to that next step, you don't necessarily know, you know, you might not have the same opinion of where you just came from, or you might now want to take a new step. And then that's how I've always kind of seen and approached and recommended people with, within the career of infrastructure and stuff. Well, it's a, it's a good point. I think it's uh, even more true for machine learning and AI. It's extremely difficult to predict where things are going to go with the technology. And you cannot say, I'm going to do that all my life, right? You cannot say, I'm going to do generative AI all my life. Like you could not say, I'm going to do uh, traditional ML all my life or deep learning all my life. Things are evolving too fast for you to be able to predict and and clearly strategize what you're going to work on. I think it's uh, it's the skill, the right technical skill to have when it comes to technology is to be able to adapt to the new technologies. So it's not about learning a specific framework. It's not about learning a specific language. It's have the flexibility to adapt to whatever is thrown at you. You have a new technology that came out while well, you, you learn it. You have a new model that came out. It's going to uh, be important in the field you're working in. You learn it. There's a new data engineering framework that is important for ML and you have to learn it. Well, you do it. I think that's mostly, I think it's more uh, the right approach to make sure that you keep learning. In machine learning, if you stop for two years to learn, you're outdated. It's very important to make sure you, you keep learning. I remember talking to a lady that was stuck in the same job for five years doing very primitive machine learning. And she was having a hard time uh, convincing people that she could do what we call machine learning now because she forgot to really update her skills and she would, she would have a, uh, she could not convince people that what she was doing was at the level of what we expect machine learning engineers to do right now. So, but it's also very exciting in my opinion. Uh, that's what made it uh, interesting. That's what made my career interesting in my opinion. That Every year, every six months, six months is a bit short, but every year, two years, there's something new that you have to learn to continue to survive in this career. But this new learning gets you to jump to the next step and so on and so forth. Looking back, you know, we are talking about strategies. The strategy I had was not about the job titles or, or the different positions I were going to get but making sure I was learning the different skills. So when I came out of my PhD, I was very strong in mathematics. I did a PhD in applied mathematics, but uh, I was not as strong as a software engineer. So I worked very hard to become a stronger software engineer. And I did that over the years. And to do that, you know, you need to learn new frameworks, new paradigms. You need to actually even build projects that are completely disconnected from machine learning. And that was a great learning experience. So for me, the strategy was making sure that I kept learning and I was challenging myself in learning things that was outside my comfort zone. 
and even outside what I thought was related to ML. When I was working um, in this startup as a machine learning, I mean, as a director of machine learning, at some point I had to build a whole software and it involved things that were way beyond machine learning. And that was very exciting. I was prepared to, to do some of the stuff and I had to learn some of the other stuff. And there was uh, all this uh, mindset, making sure that I kept updating my skills that made me ready for that specific challenge. And right now, what I feel I've learned over the years is not really about techniques or, or algorithms or whatever, but I've learned to feel comfortable learning, to feel comfortable uh, being thrown anything at me and feel that I can actually learn it and build it. And uh, so, yeah, if there's a strategy, is like making sure that you keep challenging yourself, you keep updating your skills, you keep, you know, adapt it to adapt yourself to whatever is on the market uh, when it comes to ML or, or whatever relates to ML. And uh, it's challenging, but it's very rewarding. Yeah, interesting you mentioned that because I think... Um... I, I relate to a lot of what you said specifically. So we, when we touched previously upon like roles and titles and, and they're important and you don't want to like underestimate them. But to me, in my experience, like the work itself, it's what's important and what endures. Uh, the title, yeah, sure. That'll be the first thing people see and they may discount you for it or they may not reach out to you. But like once you're actually say interview for a job, you stand on your own experiences and what you've built. So it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to ever be fooled into like number of years of work experience equals like skills or yeah. it's not a passive thing. It's an active thing. You got to keep stretching yourself, continually learning. And it's uncomfortable. It's challenging. And it's not easy. And I feel like human nature is like you just want to be comfortable and kind of not check out, but like just have a nice stability. But I always, to me, like complacency is death. So I try to like when I'm, I try to be uncomfortable and reach for projects that are exciting that I don't even have any experience or domain knowledge in. So, um, and part of it is, I'll say the PhD helped me build that confidence in myself because PhD, somebody put it best, is like an exercise in persistence. It's just like you're just learning some a bunch of new things, um, making it up as you go. And it's, yeah, I think for me, that's the most important thing. Yeah. The thing I've learned from the PhD was to be, uh, I've learned to learn. I was, uh, I became very good at, uh, seeing something difficult and feeling that I can easily learn it. And I feel it's a, it's a real skill. It's a real skill. And obviously, you, you don't need a PhD to learn this. But if you go through a PhD, beyond what the content of the PhD, what you're going to be able to extract from it is this comfort in being facing very challenging problems and being able to really break them down into small pieces and to really solve them little by little. And uh, I, if there's anything I, 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 I took from the PhD is this. Apart from that, totally it, was, apart from that uh, it, was, uh, it was not extremely useful. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I remember one of the, you know, as, as I start meeting more higher and higher um, skilled and educated people in the field I was in, you know, you, you look up to them and you're like, man, it'd be awesome to be in their shoes, to know everything and be able to do all this awesome magic. And then the, the thing that struck me when I, when I first started talking to a number of these people and actually started working with them, you know, as I, I got the response from them is none of us know what the hell we're doing. 
Um, some of us just have a much better educated guess on where to start based on experience. And to me, that was, I, I was really taken back because, you know, I thought at some point in time with all this grinding, with all this pushing and all this learning, you hit this spot where you know everything, but you don't, you never do. And you, know, you get in these really tough challenges and tough situations. And that's why they're tough and challenging is because no one knows how to approach them. And you have to figure that out. And it's, it's learning to be the best engineer and, you know, troubleshooter you can in those situations and, and how to leverage your resources. But yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's, it's something that I start to feel now. So I could easily qualify myself as an entrepreneur right now. I mean, I'm trying to, to build my own stuff. I am in the situation where I feel that every day I'm working, I have no clue what I'm doing. I have no uh, clear path or where it's going to go, but I feel comfortable with that. You know, like uh, I used to be scared of not knowing how people were going to react about something, but now I feel excited about trying something and see how people react and learning about if people don't like what I'm doing or, or they like it. You know, it's disappointing when you do something and people don't like it, but it's a great learning experience for you to improve the next time, you know. I have, I have this, you know, this feeling where, yeah, like uh, every day now is like, yeah, I have no clue what I'm doing, but that's great. Yeah, and that's, that's honestly how I've been with, with all my AI work for, for the past six, eight months to a year is I, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how this is getting put together like this, but it's happening and we're figuring it out as we go. Um, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's, it's valuable to have a community out there of people that you can rely on. You can bounce stuff off of um, because if you can put your content public or you can talk to people and vet out an idea, you know, they give you feedback and more, more times than not, people give, positive feedback than just oh, this is trash get it out of my way unless that's youtube youtube's just bad about <laughs> if you were to post as much as i do on social media i don't i don't know if you would uh have this uh this opinion oh no my my blogging <laughs> and the stuff that i did never got to the point where i got more than like one comment every month or so so well you know like uh, i actually have a lot of positive positive return on what i do but uh, strangely enough, the one negative comment that I get like every once in a while touched me way more. I started to post on LinkedIn. It was April 2022. I was uh, still at Meta. I was so bored by what I was doing there that I thought I was doing more machine learning by posting things on machine learning in, in LinkedIn than actually doing my job. I remember like uh, people being very interested by what I was saying. But every once in a while, there would be that one person that would almost insult me or completely try to denigrate what I was saying. And that would hurt me. You know, like, honestly, that I, it would take a toll on me. I, I've learned to deal with that over time. But, I mean, I didn't realize that it would be uh, that difficult. I mean, it was not that difficult. But I didn't realize that it could affect me that much. You know, the, the little negative comments. But anyway, mm. small parentheses. I, I can absolutely see that. I can see that totally. So, so I had a question I for you. Yeah. Go, going off of some of the stuff we were talking about previously, like if, you know, with how fast the industry is moving, with, with how fast technology is going, you know, what are like foundational knowledge topics 
that that'll hold true for a while. So I um, think it really depends. I think it really depends what jobs you have, what job you have. So if you are a software engineer, that question is not the same than if you are a machine learning engineer or you know other type of engineering. I, it's it's difficult to be extremely clear on how to answer the question. But if you if you're a machine learning engineer, I I would assume that it's better to be more of a generalist than to fully specialize in one thing. I mean, it's okay to specialize for a couple of years on something and then to move on. If you start to specialize, for example, too long on computer vision models, well, you, you, you're not anymore a machine learning engineer. You become a computer vision machine learning engineer and you start to be disconnected from how it works outside your domain of expertise. The things that I think will still hold true is that first you need to, at this point, you still need to be a very good software engineer if you want to do machine learning. You know, like you still need to know the basics in traditional machine learning and, and deep learning. And I, I don't know, I'm not sure if this answers your, your question. What do, you, what do you think? Yeah, it's getting there. Um, and I, I think I understand what you're getting at. And then a lot of it came from with my experience. So... When I first started digging in, I wanted foundation knowledge. So I started in with, with deep ML basics and ran through all the basics. And then it's like, mm. okay, let's let's step up and let's move into deep learning. And then when I started digging into deep learning, it's like, okay, that's making a lot of the ML stuff obsolete. So is that actually a better foundation to start with than the deeper ML stuff? Or is it, you know, is it, are they both considered, you know, solid foundations there to build on top of? So I would I would say that I would if I would if I would to t if I were to take a guess most of the machine learning that is done around the world in different companies is going to be traditional ML. It's not going to be deep learning and it's not going to be generative AI. You know, we could take some polls to make sure that what I'm saying is right, but that would be my guess. I think it's difficult okay. to dismiss the traditional ML. Now, it might be true that the money might not be in traditional ML in a sense that you may make more money as a machine learning engineer working on deep learning. You may make more money as a machine learning engineer working on models that relates to LLMs, etc. Maybe it may depend also on, on what you want to do, where you, where you live, because in most parts of the world, you know, like in most places, there's no companies where they actually have the maturity to deploy deep learning models. In most places, it's not the case. Where I've worked in, in the past, they did not have the maturity in most places. And it was easier to deploy you know, a simple traditional model. So I would, not, I would not dismiss that. But if it's for you, somebody that is more of a software engineer and that is interested by generative AI, well, what I would do is actually follow that excitement about generative AI. Instead of trying to build all the foundations you need, what I would do is try to see where this excitement is going to take you. So you're excited about generative AI, follow that excitement and learn about it uh, as much as you can. There will come a time, I think, where you know enough to feel that you may need to deepen your understanding in some aspects of machine learning that may be a bit more traditional. So I, I think when you're a student, it's better to, to, to be a generalist and try to 
learn about everything, to make sure that you're not missing out on something that is considered to be basic in machine learning. But if you've been working in the field, I mean, if you've been working as a software engineer for 20 years and you suddenly want to bring AI to the where you work, I think it's the best strategy to take is to focus on what you want to do instead of trying to learn everything because there's too much to learn to really quickly, you know, have something that is meaningful when it comes to building something. And 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 specializing right now, like following what excites you right now, will lead to making some mistakes. You know, I think you will realize in the future that there would have been a simpler way to do it. But uh, I think from a personal point of view, it's better to follow what you find fun to learn instead, instead of starting to do things that are not fun to do. And there's so much to learn that you need to start somewhere. I don't think there's a right way to start learning about machine learning. As a software engineer that is right now a manager, I think it's important to understand how machine learning can relate to the business and how it relates to what the different engineering pipelines you may have in, you know, in, in your current company. Instead of starting to learn about deep learning, to learn, to learn about traditional machine learning, or to learn about the details of how LLM work, I think I would actually take a step back and think about machine learning as a black box. For example, when you think about LLM, it's just a black box that take, takes some text and generate text. And you can make it generate other things, but you know, like you don't need to understand how it works under the hood to actually do things with it. I would focus on things like machine learning system design, where you understand how ML can get you to build products. You understand, you know, all the different infrastructures that you would need to to build a product that involve machine learning. So. What is specific about machine learning beyond machine learning when it comes to building a product that involves machine learning? What type of databases, what type of servers, what type of pipelines you will need to build to aggregate the training data? What type of pipelines you will need to build to monitor a model? What type of pipelines you will need to build to validate that the current model in production is still working? These kind of things. This is mostly called machine learning system design. And I think as a software engineer, it's a better strategy to uh, approach machine learning from that angle because it's much less difficult. I mean, you don't have to deal, you know, when you open a machine learning book, a textbook about deep learning, the first thing you're going to see is a bunch of equations and it's going to be, to feel maybe challenging to connect this to the new product you may want to build. So I would advise to focus on the product you want to build and what do you need to actually build around that abstract idea of a product to actually make it work. And then from there, you can deepen your understanding on the different aspects of machine learning. As a software engineer, I would, I think, be careful to not dig too deep in some aspects because it's, what, it's not what you need. At some point, you may want to, for your personal you know, gain to to learn deeper about some aspect. But if you want to prioritize what to learn to build stuff in where you work, 
It's what I would recommend. When comes a time to actually need somebody that has that deep understanding, I would hire that person. I would not try to think that you would be the right person to do it if you don't take the right, I mean, if you don't take the steps to fully transition to become a machine learning engineer. If you remain a software engineer, especially a manager, and you're not taking the steps to fully transition to become a machine learning engineer, don't start to think you're going to do it yourself. Hire the right people to do it. I, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, it was one of those. It, it took a little bit for me to catch on to that. It's like, oh, all these guys are getting guys and gals are getting PhDs out there in this stuff. I'm 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 not ramping up in the sex, next six months to their level, you know. And it's like, okay, that's you got to respect the guys for what they've spent their time on, and they're they're the ones that come in with the knowledge. It's just dig into the level where you you understand this is as far as I can go, and now you need someone else who's better at you than it. Yeah, for sure. And I would add to what you said, that uh, having a PhD, and tell me if I'm wrong, Alejandro, but having a PhD in that domain does not make you an expert in that domain as an industri and industry uh, worker. In the industry, mm -hmm. what you need to build is pretty disconnected from what you learn as a PhD student in academia on the same subject. Hiring somebody with a PhD in LLMs, let's say, does not make that person an expert in how to manage LLMs in industry settings. Just, just, uh, just yeah. what I would uh, add. What, what do you think, Alejandro? Totally agree. Totally agree. And I think you touched on this earlier when you said that the people that built a model are not the same ones that deploy it and actually get practical use out of it in production or in actual companies and products. So that's a very different set of skills that is, should be maybe separated for most people. Uh, and I'll also add, Ryan, to your um, maybe concerns about feeling behind or not being able to catch up. I think in my experience also, it, it's overwhelming as somebody in the ML and data science field to keep up with all these advances in LLM and also still have like a broad enough foundational understanding of all the different techniques, supervised versus unsupervised, um, traditional classical ML techniques. So. Don't be discouraged. His, most people don't know everything, even if they're in the field, they're specialized. Yeah. So I think it's just, you got to just follow your, follow the opportunity and your curiosity and get practical use, like Damien said, to just start building things with it. And then on a need to know basis, start digging deeper. Yeah. Good point. So personally, I have a PhD in, officially in physics. Mm -hmm. So I did not do a thesis on machine learning. So I have learned machine learning doing my PhD, you know, with, on my own and after on the job. And I remember at some point in my career, like meeting people that were coming out of PhDs in machine learning. And I felt uh, somewhat uh, impressed. I was looking up to them. Even then, they had less experience than me. But we, by talking to them, I realized that I was having actually a much better understanding of machine learning and how we deal with it in the industry, then they did. Even then, they had the, the, the right education on paper. So for a long time, I was actually uh, looking up to people that were coming out of PhDs in machine learning. Even then, if they didn't have a lot of experience. And over time, I, 
I realized that having a PhD in machine learning is great, but it there there's a lot of work that needs to be put to gain the experience to be useful in the industry on machine learning. Let me ask you guys a question about that, just straight up from my ignorance, because I've been nowhere close to a PhD program. So when you, when you come out of your master's and then you, you go into a PhD program, are, are you already in the field working or do most PhD students in ML and data science and LLM, you know, just are still 100% students? So I think uh, it's yes to both questions. I mean, you're a student, uh, but it doesn't mean that you spend your time in a classroom in front of a board with a professor teaching something. In a PhD, especially in the U.S., it's not true in, in other countries. In the U.S., the first couple of years, you spend still time in the classroom. But a PhD thesis is not about solving homeworks. It's about, it's about uh, doing research. If you don't do research, you don't graduate from a PhD. And doing research in most ac academic universities, I mean, in most universities, it's about taking a subject uh, that nobody has the answer to and spending, you know, three, four, five years getting to that answer. So when you come out of a PhD, you're, you actually are the world-leading expert on what you've been working on. It may be a very small, specific uh, subject, but still nobody in the world knows better than you about that subject. And uh, that's why you, you gain that confidence mm -hmm. that you can actually do whatever... Uh, is thrown at you coming out of, of a PhD. You spent personally five years trying to solve problems that nobody could solve before. And it's great to be able to build your own understanding of a field by standing on the shoulders of giants, you know? Mm -hmm. You have like great people like, for my thesis, for example, I had to rely on the work of very famous physicists, mathematicians, and build from what they did. And it's a great experience to feel that you were able to do things that they didn't get to do, you know? So yeah, you, you, it doesn't, you know, it's, being a, a PhD student doesn't mean that you spend time, most of your time in a classroom. It means that you do research and you're ready to, coming out of a PhD, you should be ready to design research on your own and that's why that's why at some point you know it was very fashionable to hire PhDs to work on machine learning problems because or data science problems because a lot of the time data science data science problems may be not well understood, not well defined, and PhDs are comfortable defining those those uh, you know defining things around unknowns. But it's not because you're coming out of a PhD that you understand the full extent of what matters in the industry. Yeah. So in your PhD, you spend time trying to uh, build the perfect experiment, something that is, you know, that nobody can disagree with. And uh, the metrics you care about are completely different from the ones you may care about in the industry. You may care about some benchmark in academia, or you may care about some consensus around specific metric, you know, you're working on, I mean, uh, in the field you're working on. But in the industry, you know, you may want to actually uh, be much faster in deploying something. You may want to actually rely much more on 
what the users are going to tell you than your, your metrics you're measuring uh, while you're doing your experiments. There's a lot of unlearning that needs to happen when you come out of a PhD. It takes a, a long time to unlearn what you learned in your PhD because you really need to do that coming out of a PhD. There's also something, personally, I felt that when you come out of a PhD, you have an ego. You feel so comfortable about uh, solving things that nobody can. You're such an expert in your own field that you have some difficulty to accept that there are things you don't know. Or at least, no, it's not completely true. You know that there are things you don't know, but you, there's a lot of things you still think you know, but you actually don't. And uh, because of your ego, it takes even longer to, to unlearn that. So hiring a PhD is actually not always the best uh, strategy. And that makes sense. Yeah. I, I think my experience was similar to yours, Damien. Um, I did my PhD in, in, in a US institution. So I would say classes are certainly like supplemental. This, it's not, most of what you're doing is like you're doing full-time research and with, with some classes peppered in uh, as you may need them based on your curriculum or whatever interests you have. But yeah, your, your, your main goal is to get publications, to, to, to qualify for your candidacy, and then to ultimately defend your thesis against like a panel of your advisor and other uh, people in the, in the field, professors in the field. So it's a very different experience to what I've, been, what I've been exposed to in industry. And I think what Damien said about like crafting perfect experiments or this like artificial settings, Industry is very messy and it moves fast. Like you said, you don't have the luxury to be like very, to be a perfectionist in this, in this regard. So that's something that I struggle with. I remember in my first job, um, cause I wanted to have like a very exhausted, like research and development phase for my products that I was building. But yeah. And I will say also, I like to add that it's not for everybody. I mean, it's great if you, if you're a naturally curious person and you, I mean, the idea of getting paid to learn, it's, it's for me groundbreaking. I think it's one of the best things ever. So that's awesome. Uh, but if you're interested in the ML field, you hardly teach it. Like it, it may help you in some really specialized areas. Like if you need to be an LLM researcher to work at open AI, building these models, sure, that's going to help you. But if you just want to be a machine learning engineer, you probably better serve not spending those five six yeah. years on your PhD. Just get into a job and start building products because I would actually value those experiences, those years of experience more than the PhD because it's not, doesn't equate as well. And I think there's a point in everyone's career where like your work experience overtake your education. And I think you could get ahead in that regard. I agree with that. There are very few places in the world where having a PhD for machine learning is actually beneficial. Okay, you work, if you work at DeepMind, if you work at OpenAI and you actually are doing groundbreaking research, it's good to have that experience of being able to solve problems that are extremely difficult, like the research ones. For the strategy to build a career, it's a very bad strategy to spend five years wasting time trying to solve artificial problems instead of solving real problems in the industry. Well, it depends, you know, what you define being real or artificial. I think you see what I'm saying, right? I think if you think about a career on its own, uh, on its whole, I think it's much more beneficial to go right away to work instead of, yes, wasting those five years not working because it's never considered a work experience to have a PhD. 
I've seen a lot of people that were with me in bachelor that did not go uh, to, to do a PhD. When I was done with my PhD, were way more advanced in the career than I was when I started my career myself. Five years later, they were way more advanced than I was five years after I started my career. When you think about a whole career that is going to last for, what, 30 years or something, 30 years seems short, but where are you going to end up at the end of this career? I think if you start to waste your five first years trying to do things that are not going to be that interesting for your career, it's a, it might be a big mistake. And, and it's, a, it's also a financial mistake. When you spend five years earning the salary of a PhD student, instead of spending five years earning the salary of you know, working as a machine learning engineer in the industry, you're going to be able to accumulate more wealth over the years than you would if you wasted those five years. You're going to be ready faster to buy a house. You're going to be ready faster to, to even you know, marry and have kids because you're going to be financially ready by working in the industry. And so financially, it's actually, I think, a better decision to not do a PhD. So that would be, that would be my opinion. I don't know that I go that far. I think <laughs> I don't consider my years in a PhD a waste, but I, I totally relate to that. It's like, it can, there's this like larger than life idea about a PhD. It's like, you're like a, an expert, but it's like, there's still a lot you need to catch up after a PhD. But I will add to Damien's point, it does open up a lot more opportunities after so, and I think it's a higher ceiling in your career overall, where like, so far I feel like I've gotten access to a lot more opportunities and higher profile opportunities than I would have perhaps otherwise. I can imagine, I mean, I certainly right after college, I didn't feel anywhere near ready enough to take on a machine learning engineer role, but maybe as somebody else is more advanced or feels more prepared in this respect, but. That was an I, opinion I that I was curious about because, so in, in my side of infrastructure and, and engineering networking, you know, PhDs and stuff like that aren't, aren't, aren't massively popular and there's not really much of a need for one. Yeah. But the industry is more focused on like certifications. And mm. some certifications are really high level. Like you're putting five to 10,000 hours into, um, I don't necessarily hit, they think they hit the same level of scrutiny as a PhD, but they, they get into the same argument here. And it brings up that exact point that you you brought up. It's like, you know, you, you have all these trade-offs for focusing your time and effort here and does it does it add value to you but the 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 very first thing that i always come to is i remember one of the high high level certifications that i got it opened up so many doors and the conversations changed instantly after i got that certification and that was a that was a massive plus there yeah it's it's a good point you know like uh i don't know if um i i know exactly what what is best but uh, you were saying and alejandro you were saying the same thing that you you have better opportunities coming out of a PhD. And definitely, when I came out of a PhD, I was given access to jobs that uh, were considered to be too complex for people that only had a bachelor, for example. And I was a better candidate on paper than people that were just coming out of a bachelor. So that, that may have been true. I was directly promoted to being a senior data scientist coming out of my PhD. And people uh, were regarding me as an expert and they had a high respect for 
who I was just because I was coming from a PhD. And that, that helped me in a sense. But I realized that, first of all, uh, com by coming out of a PhD, I was right away considered as an expert, which which was not It was not true, right? I was I was not an expert in machine learning coming out of a PhD. People wanted to keep me as the expert. People wanted to keep me on the ground solving the problems because, on paper, I was better than other people doing that. And people with less education would be promoted to managerial positions, which is what I wanted to do, actually. So I felt that having a PhD actually kept me on the ground longer than it, I needed to be. Because when you hire somebody that is potentially less good at solving math problems and, and complex problems that nobody has a solution, well, you are regarded as somebody that may be better at managing people. And I wish this was was given to me as an opportunity earlier. I may be wrong, but I feel that uh, I remain the expert longer than I needed to be. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. It's a good perspective to have. Hey guys, so it was great having you here. I think we're going to conclude this uh, session today. Nice uh, meeting you. It was a great conversation. I hope to have you on the podcast uh, again soon. All right. Appreciate Not the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Nice meeting you yes. all. Nice to meet you guys.